pursue your purpose, speak your truth, deal with adult bullies, cope with failure, live beyond fear, establish values, set boundaries, move past trauma. These are all the themes in my Amazon bestseller, The Smart Girls Handbook. Tribers get in close. For 15 years, I have been searching for a book that didn't exist. So I am thrilled to share that I decided to write it. The Smart Girls Handbook is available to buy now from wherever you get your books and also in Canada, the United States of America, New Zealand and Australia. Everything we do is a response to something you have asked for and girl, have you been begging me for a book for years? Who is it for you? The reviews are outstanding. The press has been phenomenal and I am overwhelmed by the amazing support it has had already. This isn't my book, but our book. I realised after my talks around the world, women would be queuing for hours just to ask me one question. I didn't want them to just walk away, but to have a tangible source to have forever. And this is it. This is refreshing, never before read content that will inspire, motivate, empower, inform and entertain you. It's full of my personal development tips that have got me living as my most authentic and highest self, literally glowing from within. My most vulnerable moments and hilarious stories that will resonate with you. The Smart Girls Handbook is a celebration of womanhood and the book missing from your library. So grab your copy today, tag me on Instagram at smartgirltribe and I will send you an exclusive gift just to say thank you. This one is for all of my girls who have been in relationships with a narcissist, whether that be with a parent, friend, sibling, but especially with a partner. Alarm bells went off for me when I went on a date and the man admitted to being a narcissist. I thought, right, I need to call in the leading expert on narcissism to really understand it. And especially given how many girlfriends of mine around the same time were coming to me telling me that they too knew a narcissist and how much content on narcissism I was seeing online as well. So here we are. Dr. Craig Malkin is a lecturer in psychology for Harvard Medical School, a licensed psychologist with over two decades of experience in helping couples, individuals and families, and he is also the author of the internationally acclaimed book, Rethinking Narcissism, which has been named Amazon's Book of the Month, the Daily Mail's Book of the Year, was featured on the Oprah Winfrey Network, was featured in the New York Times, and selected as the Millions of Most Anticipated Book of the Year. Hello, Dr. Malkin. It is wonderful to have you on the Smart Girl Tribe podcast today. Being the leading expert, could you please explain to our audience exactly what is narcissism? Absolutely. I always like to start with what narcissism isn't, because when most people think of the word narcissism or they get an image of a narcissist, they think of vain, preening, boastful, braggarts, reality TV types. And the problem is that not all narcissists care about looks or fame or money. And if you get too hung up on that image, you can kind of miss other information or other signs of problems and trouble. So narcissism is not a diagnosis. Narcissism is a trait or survival strategy or an adaptation. You can think of it as that as a way of adapting to a specific relationship and emotional environment. I should say relational and emotional environment, really. Um, and you want to think of narcissism as the drive to feel special, exceptional, or unique. This is how I talk about it in Rethinking Narcissism, because if you look at all the research, you look at cross-cultural research, and you look at what, how narcissism manifests, really the core of it is that feeling of needing to stand out from 
the uh, almost other 8 billion people on the planet. Uh, and there's lots of ways to do that. So that brings you into different types of narcissism. But so you really want to think of just the, the core of it as a drive mm-hmm. to feel special. People who do it a lot, people who are extremely high in that trait or rely on that drive a lot, uh, who also score above average on self-report measures of narcissism, you can call those narcissists, extremely narcissists. Not all narcissists are disordered. Those who are disordered, who meet criteria for pathological narcissism, those are the people who have narcissistic personality disorder. Maybe we can talk about the distinctions between them. But again, you want to think of narcissism, the drive to feel special. Narcissists are people who are addicted to or dependent on that drive. And people with narcissistic personality disorder have disordered narcissism. Does everyone then have some sort of narcissistic trait within them? We all have some degree of narcissism and actually a problem when we have not even a trace of narcissism. And mm-hmm. I do want to say a little bit about that. If you think about the core of what narcissism is, that drive to feel special, you can even hear in that that some of that is helpful. And there is cross-cultural research, again, that shows that there is something called adaptive or healthy narcissism. People don't like that term, um, even though I grew up with it clinically and most clinicians did. But the evidence empirically is overwhelming that there are any number of measures at this point, including my own that I developed with my colleagues on the narcissism spectrum scale called healthy narcissism, uh, that basically show that you can think of narcissism Uh, by another name it goes in the research which is Mm self-enhancement and self-enhancement is uh is an overly positive view of self and often world and future Um, it's not realistic it's not self-esteem it's not self-confidence and what we see is that people who have some of that which can also be called healthy narcissism, persist in the face of failure. They're able to give and receive in relationships. Some studies suggest they might even live longer because of the health benefits of all of that. And if you measure narcissism on a scale, um, you can find that there are people who have around that healthy amount. um, And then people that we looked at in our research who really don't have any, and that's a problem too. Mm -hmm. Um, A lack of self-enhancement at all is associated with anxiety and depression, and often people who lack self-enhancement can get into relationships with extremely narcissistic friends and partners. So yeah, it exists to some extent in in all of us uh, along a spectrum, and you can think of a, a normal curve, that's what it's called, that bell curve for people who haven't seen that before or aren't familiar all the scores fall along that and on the low end you find fewer people on the high end you find fewer people how do you know then when your narcissistic trait is unhealthy as opposed to healthy it's actually fairly straightforward there's there's an empirical answer or research answer to that question And then I would say there's a subjective answer or a personal experience, a feeling of interacting with people answer. I want to start with the empirical one. If you think of the drive to feel special and about what it means that, again, that need to stand out from the other 7 billion people on the planet to feel 
8 billion. I have to update that. <laughs> I've been saying it, talking about the research for so long. We're almost at 8 billion. Mm -hmm. So that need to stand up from those other 8 billion people on the planet when it becomes addictive. Uh, I like to say it this way, to the extent that we can depend on people, we will not depend on feeling special. Extreme narcissism is a way of bypassing healthy dependency, being able to turn to people in mutually caring, connected ways. And if that drive becomes strong enough, we'll lie, steal, cheat, do whatever it takes in order to feel special. And then we show the core, we demonstrate or possess the core of pathological narcissism, which I call triple E, mm -hmm. exploitation. That is doing whatever it takes to feel special, no matter the cost to people around us. Entitlement, bent, acting as if the world should bend to our will. And empathy impairments. This is becoming so obsessed with feeling exceptional, special, unique, that you lose sight of the, the, other, the needs and feelings of other people. Mm -hmm. Triple E is the core of pathological narcissism. If you see that in yourself and others. You want to you want to seek help, particularly in a relationship. If you're with somebody who has who has clear evidence, you see clear evidence of triple E. Um, and we can pause here. I can go to you know how do you know in interaction? Um, but I, I want I want to start with that. How common is narcissism? How many people really could be considered narcissistic? Not pathologically narcissist, though. Excellent question, because that is also uh, an empirical question with an empirical answer. I mean, you can look at the research. I mean, remember, if you think about narcissism as a trait, and you could measure it on that mm -hmm. normal curve and see where people fall. You can then divide up that normal curve into what's average, what's below average, what's extremely above average. And one way to think about what narcissist means is it's people who score uh, well above average, what's called one standard deviation above average on a measure of narcissism. And that's really around, you know, you can put it around 16%, right? So if you give people, if you give people a measure like this and you cut it off and say, okay, anybody above that score, that one standard deviation is, is what we're going to call a narcissist. If I'm remembering the math correctly in my head, yeah, it's around 16%, or maybe a little less. Um, remember, not all narcissists are going to be disordered, right? Because we can measure narcissism and we can look at healthy self-enhancement versus problematic, pathological self-enhancement of narcissism. And they don't rise and fall in perfect step with each other. So you can get people who score high enough on these measures that they would count as narcissists if you just look at those cutoffs. But all the scores are, say, coming from things like, I'm a natural-born leader, or I per persist in the face of failure. I like to dream big, things mm -hmm. like that. And that's, and that's where the majority of that scoring is coming from. And some of those people might grow up to be really important influential leaders who don't hurt other people i mean some some you know if you look at the research on presidents for example um many of them score high enough to be called narcissists we hope they are not pathological narcissists right that's the hope and given the fact that you can again divide that even further so say you've got that percentage of people who score high enough to be called narcissists then you can look at okay well how many people in general um 
meet enough of those criteria or have enough of that pattern of triple E that you would say they have pathological, pathological narcissism. And I want to warn people, if you start looking at this, there's an often cited statistic that turns out to be wrong of 6%. Uh, it might be it, uh, it might be higher than what's commonly found around the world, which is one percent. That's one in a hundred. So over and over again, what shows up in the research is you might find one in a hundred people who are, are unhealthy enough that you would say that they have pathological narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder. I think that is probably a little bit higher because mm -hmm. even now we don't capture all forms of narcissism when they're doing we're doing those diagnoses and i think when we do it's going to be a little higher but you can think about it in that range are narcissists born or made both i'm i'm saying this a lot there's a, a research answer to that too and then there's just our understanding like in my work with uh, people i work with any number i work with a number of people who have pathological narcissism and have worked with them over the years and they've helped people who had who previously would have met criteria for narcissistic personality disorder and to a person they have a background of abuse and neglect where they grew up in environments where they were criticized or ridiculed or they were only lifted up for achievement and they never really left they never really felt in their relationships with their parents or family like they were recognized as a person you're cared about unless they were doing things, right? The talk of, this is what turned a perfect person into a performance. Mm -hmm. So they have that background, but it's also clear you can look at genetic studies where uh, narcissism of a particular kind, uh, uh, extroverted or grandiose narcissism, these are the loud chest thumping braggarts, or sometimes I like to say the narcissist we all know and loathe. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that runs in families. We can look at that heritability. And then there's another uh, psychologist researcher named Phoebe Kramer. Uh, and she's done a lot of great work. And she actually did a longitudinal study following kids over 20, 21 years. And she came up with a precursor for early uh, signs of narcissism. And she found that some little preschoolers show that, like, you know, they're overly dramatic. They always want to be the center of attention. They might be kind of bullies. So they show those early signs. But following them over time, what she found is that the only kids who grew up to show that unhealthy manifestation or version of narcissism had a kind of parenting uh, that left them feeling insecure about being able to depend on people in healthy ways, um, where they they didn't feel like if they were sad, scared, lonely, or blue, they could turn to their parents or people around them. So the kids who did get an environment that helped them, even if they started out with those early warning signs in a child, they didn't grow up to show those those pathological or unhealthy patterns. And often they turned out fairly healthy. So the way I think about it is you want to think about it as a difficult temperament, a particular kind of temperament, and maybe even more aggressive. There are There is evidence that uh, people who are extremely narcissistic are born with more aggression, and that can be wired into us too. Combine that with a difficult environment, and that's a recipe for this. As adults, how can we spot narcissism? Say, 
when we are having a conversation with someone, are there any particular signs to look out for? There absolutely are red flags to look out for. I I went over triple E. Um, that's not always immediately apparent, but it might be. And you want to be cautious if you see that core in other people or in yourself. I'm all, I'm always also talking to you know, our fellow human beings who struggle Mm -hmm. with these problems. And again, they have had experiences that set them up for this. It's not just genetic or or something they're born with. But if you are early on in a relationship, you can't always see those things. And again, there's versions of narcissism where it isn't so apparent. There's one version of narcissism, in fact, I should mention, that's often called covert. We haven't even talked about the types, actually. It's covert or vulnerable or hypersensitive I just call it introverted narcissism because these are people who tend to be more inward and more introverted. They score high in introversion. This isn't our typical view of what narcissism is. And what you find out in the research is that people who have this version of narcissism, if you look at early interactions, in fact, people cannot tell right away. Not because they're being particularly clever or, or, or manipulative. That's not actually what covert narcissism means. That's a confusion as well. But because they're introverted and they're quiet and they're shy. And so they don't, they're not outward enough. And so in, if you look at these studies about what happens early on in a relationship, people can't see it. But they can if they pay attention to certain tells. So remember, again, uh, narcissism. Uh, you can think of extreme narcissism as a way of coping with a particular experience of feeling untrusting or unwilling or like it isn't safe to truly depend on people in mutually caring and connected ways. It's another way to think about what's called attachment insecurity, but let's just think about it that way. Uh, And so extreme narcissism or narcissism as a coping strategy is a way of bypassing that. And as soon as you start trying to bypass that, there's only a there's only a limited number of ways to do that. And really, the main way is you have to not be too vulnerable, right? You have to not be open about, say, feeling sad or scared or lonely when you're talking to people, or show those things. You have to distance from them in some way um, and cover them over with. If it's a, if we're talking about a really outward, loud narcissist, by being bigger than life and having to be the most important person in the room. If it's a quiet, shy one, it's usually because they want to feel like the most misunderstood person in the room or the ugliest, even. It's not for positive traits or positive reasons. So how do you how do you see this? Well, one of the most common patterns that happened is something I call playing emotional hot potato. And you just want to think of that as uh, it's like the game of hot potato, only with feelings of insecurity. For somebody who's extremely narcissistic, they can't say, I'm unsure, I feel uncertain, I don't know what's going on, or I'm not sure what to do next, right? Because they don't trust that people are going to care or help them with that. So um, they often say or do things to make you feel that when they're feeling that. It's kind of a form of projection. I don't want this here, you take it. So a classic example I give is that I had a, a client who was trying to apply to graduate school. And she was going over applications and her boyfriend, who wasn't abusive, who wasn't one of these like obvious, extremely narcissistic or even somebody with narcissistic personality disorder, but he couldn't own his insecurity. And he stood over her. He said, ah, you sure you want to apply there? 
I don't think you're going to get in there. I mean, come on, you got to be realistic, right? He had no idea what he was going to do in his own life, but he was certainly happy to sort of prop himself up as the one in the know and kind of guide her in what she was doing wrong. That's called playing emotional hot potato, or that's what I call it. And that can happen very early on in relationships. Uh, and if you see that, you want to kind of be attuned to other problems that might result. How many types are there? There, there may be more, but we we had, can categorize and know of three so far. So again, think of narcissism as a drive to feel special, exceptional, or unique. As soon as you think about it that way, it's also really clear that there are lots of ways to do that. So you can feel special or exceptionally unique by being feeling like you're the most attractive, the most intelligent person in the room. Um, the, the most important. And then you're, so we're talking there about that more extroverted or obvious, it's also called narcissism. But a second type uh, that I mentioned earlier, introverted, hypersensitive, covert, you want to think of them unlike the, uh, the overt, loud narcissism, where they feel insecure on the inside you don't see their vulnerability and they're they're inflated or grandiose on the outside introverted or covert narcissists are grandiose on the inside and outwardly they can see they can seem vulnerable uh there are problems we've been thinking of that as real vulnerability. It's not real emotional vulnerability. Maybe we get a chance to talk about that. Mm-hmm. But that version, again, there's people who feel special by virtue of their pain. Or they feel special by virtue of their flaws. They don't feel good about themselves. This is why narcissism and self-esteem uh, are wildly uncorrelated at times. It could be negatively correlated. It could be positively correlated. It's all over the map. And there's a third type, uh, communal narcissism. These are people who feel special because they believe they're they're the most helpful people they know. And if you ask them on a self-report measure, you know, the question, or you make a statement, I'm the most helpful person I know, they will strongly agree with that. And they agree with statements like, one day I'll be famous for for my, my good deeds. Obviously, these are not people who care about looks or fame. They want to be seen as the most altruistic person in the room, but they're all different ways of just feeling exceptional. So those are the three main types. I guess I should add there's a fourth type, which is not officially diagnosis, and that is malignant narcissism. Uh, it's really distinct from just everyday narcissism or even narcissistic personality disorder. It's people who demonstrate malignant narcissism. You want to think of way out there on that normal curve. I mean, extremely far out. Uh, and they're so addicted to feeling special um, that they demonstrate what's called the dark tetrad. That is narcissism, which we've already gone over, psychopathy, which you can think of as a remorseless, uh, a, a remorseless manipulative style. These are people who will lie straight to your face, be caught, and they show no guilt. All right. We often think of psychopathic. Uh, murderers, for example, that's psychopathy, uh, Machiavellianism, which is a cold chess playing approach to life and relationships and sadism, 
which most of us have heard of, which is taking pleasure in other people's pain. That's actually called the dark tetrad. And as soon as you start seeing really severely disordered narcissism, you're getting into that dark tetrad, which is which is the central feature of malignant narcissism. If you want to think about malignant narcissism, the most severe examples might be somebody like Adolf Hitler, mm-hmm. um, or maybe on the on the less extreme end, Bernie Madoff. I don't know if everybody remembers Bernie Madoff, but after he was caught and he was in jail, he laughed at the stupidity of the people who captured him for how long it took them to capture him. That is malignant narcissism. Is narcissism dangerous or would you more describe it as a form of self-protection? That is a great way to describe it. Narcissism is a form of self-protection. It does have protective benefits, right? So again, if we go back to what healthy narcissism is and what narcissism itself is, boiled down to its purest form, that is self-enhancement. And over and over again, uh, in the research, when you look at self-enhancement, and people like Bosnian war survivors who self-enhance do better, it does have protective benefits. It's only when we become rigidly and inflexibly attached to feeling uh, unique or exceptional in any way that that it becomes a problem. And if you Again, if you just sort of look at the research findings on this, the the person who who has healthy narcissism or self enhances in normal ways, um, they will overestimate their abilities. Give them a task, you know, some kind of task, and they'll say, "Oh yeah, I'm going to be great at that. I'm fantastic," um, and they truly believe it. Uh, but if they are then subjected to judges who grade their work, whether it's real or not, and they're given feedback and say, you know what, turns out you're not as spectacular an artist as you thought you were, or, you know, here's, here's the results. You're, you're not as strong a literary mind as you thought you were when it comes to looking, whatever it is. It's people who show healthy narcissism will adjust their views down, especially if it's realistic feedback. They say, oh, okay. And they're fine with it. Somebody who's extremely narcissistic will cling to it. Uh, They will not give up that view and they will attack the person who's giving them feedback. This is is fairly typical. So on the low end, it kind of helps us weather storms. You know, it it helps us with disappointments, sort of hang on to our sense of, well, you know, I've still got some stuff going on. And on the extreme end, people wind up so attached to it that they will hurt others in order to maintain that feeling. And that's where it loses its protective benefits for ourselves and those around us and becomes destructive. Is narcissism in adults more often than not a consequence of a traumatic childhood? Pathological narcissism in adults is often a consequence of a traumatic childhood. Absolutely. Again, if you go just go back and look at how it comes about, there's ample evidence that people start out with some tendencies. Again, mm-hmm. think of it as kind of like a, a difficult temperament. But it's the modeling in the family that really pushes people towards it. So very often, not always, but very often extremely narcissistic uh, adults have had extraordinarily narcissistic 
even malignant, you know, not murderers, but even malignant narcissistic parents. I saw a show recently, I don't know if people have been watching it, but just it's called Succession. It was almost a little too much for me, but meaning to kind of stay with it in terms of nuance of how these things happen. But, you know, the, 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 everybody was just so awful. And, you know, if you grow up in a family where the, the father or the mother is extraordinarily manipulative and they always need to be the one, one way of coping with that, particularly if, the, if you're abused, if you dare to try to take up room in any way, or you dare to sort of try to feel good or assert yourself, if you already have a naturally aggressive temperament, it's, you know, the one way to deal with that is to borrow that way or identify with or take on that way of being, right? If, if there can be only one in a relationship, I'm not going to be the one who's silenced. I'll be the one who does the silencing. Mm -hmm. So combined with abuse, the kind of relentless beating someone down who has some of this already, they are, and they're, and they have some natural aggression that's, that they're born with they're much more likely to adopt that stance themselves because they never want to feel that disempowered or that unimportant again. And they never should have been made to feel that way in the first place. The whole problem is a model of relationship where only one person has any say or any voice or takes up any room. When exploring a new relationship, if someone admits to being a narcissist, should you run, Dr. Malkin? <laughs> Maybe so. Um, the reason, I mean, that's a funny question. Maybe so, because if somebody is upfront about that, um, they are valorizing or, or, or viewing it as something positive. Otherwise, why, why are they telling you? And if somebody valorizes the tra traits of narcissism, uh, that doesn't bode well for change or flexibility or how they're going to relate to you. So I would say, if somebody leads with that, not a great sign. If they lead with it and they say, I, you know, I have been really selfish in my past relationships. I have been a narcissist. I, I've been working hard on it for the last two years. I hope I'm through it. Um, I just want to be honest that, you know, that this has been a part of who I am. Right. I think that's unlikely that you're going to hear that but if you hear that then maybe maybe that could be workable as long as you don't wind up feeling like anytime there are problems like you've got to figure the person out or maybe you did something wrong or any of those things that we do to kind of turn it back on ourselves if you really take them at their word that okay they've got this problem maybe what's happening now is that problem then you know maybe you don't need to run but i think that's so unlikely and i think it's so unlikely to have the conversation to play out that way this is something I've actually gone through, Dr. Malkin. I was on a date and the man admitted to being a narcissist, which my immediate gut instinct was that's narcissistic within itself because he's almost glorifying narcissism. Yes. Somebody who is really interested in change, who sees this as a problem in themselves, uh, will will not hold it up as a badge of honor. They just won't. But it's a funny question too, because there is another a measure in the research called the sins, 
Have you heard of this? No. The SINs, the single item narcissism scale. And all it is, is you give somebody this, a statement, you know, to what extent do you agree with the following statement? I am a narcissist. And then they, they score themselves. As I remember, it's on what's called a Likert scale or a scale from one to seven. Um, and the higher people score on that, sure enough, where they are, where they will say, I am a narcissist, sure enough, the more narcissistic they are on other measures of behavior, of mm-hmm. interaction. So it's a particular kind of narcissism that captures, it captures the more outgoing, loud, you know, braggadocio kind of narcissism. But that's basically like a real life example of somebody agreeing strongly with the statement on the sins. Mm-hmm. Not a great sign. Are narcissists, I know we have said that they're more likely to lie, but are they more likely to cheat as well? They absolutely are. That's that's also an empirical, empirically answered question. Um, infidelity is correlated with narcissism. And there's actually a, a separate measure and while we're talking about how to measure different patterns of behavior. People probably haven't even heard of this. I don't know that it's made it out of the sort of uh, abstruse journals that these things that we can find these things in, but there's a version of narcissism called sexual narcissism. Um, And sexual narcissism, exactly what it sounds like. It's exploitation and entitlement and empathy impairments only in the sexual realm. Um, And people who score high on that, on measures of, of that, on that particular construct or idea of narcissism sexual narcissism are highly likely to engage in infidelity because they think they deserve sex they think they're owed it there's a sense of entitlement around it but there's definitely a correlation between narcissism and infidelity we found that in the research there might not be but are there any physical symptoms of narcissism for example picking at your nails biting your nails paying particular attention to detail maybe your appearance or your partner's appearance the only clear physical indicator that you would have uh, that that has been replicated in just survey samples and then looking at people and seeing what how narcissism is manifest is something called effective adornment effective adornment adornment and that's exactly what it sounds like so if you take a group of people who score extremely high on narcissism measures and you take people who score average or below average, uh, what you will find in that sample is that it turns out that extremely narcissistic people really aren't any more or less extroverted, I should say, extroverted narcissists, uh, the, the loud outgoing types. They're not any more or less attractive than the average person that doesn't score high on a narcissism measure. Um, but they're really good at putting themselves together. And this was demonstrated in one clever study where the where the researchers didn't let people put themselves together after a period of time. So nobody could have makeup. You know, they had to just wear sort of normal, like boring clothes. And when when people rated, when they had a group of people just rating this group of people on their attract, attractiveness, Right, it's to wash out differences across people who just have a group of people doing these ratings and ratings instead of one. There really wasn't much of a difference. But when they allowed themselves to put themselves together, when they allowed the people to put themselves together, I should say, 
narcissists were overwhelmingly rated as more attractive. Mm. So it's not, you know, we can get into trouble here because we, you know, again, you need some healthy narcissism. You want to sort of put yourself together. You, you want to sort of, put, you know, dress up for dates and things like that. Cause I mean, that's part of also helping the person that you're with feel like you care and they matter. It's just when somebody starts getting so focused on that, that they can't see you, that they would rather spend an hour more in the mirror than talk to you, right? This is where they're turning towards feeling special instead of turning towards relationships and love. So when it turns into that, I would say that's a physical sign. And, and, you know, you do want to kind of keep a lookout for somebody if they're, if they are particularly adept at looking great, Mm -hmm. you just want to be aware that this is a pattern. Can narcissists also be shy and insecure as opposed to being quite outlandish? And again, I'm almost referring to the person I went on a date with. I knew them beforehand and they were insecure and they weren't confident either. Absolutely, yes. So the presentation that you're talking about, I would say, yes, is introverted or vulnerable narcissism. And it sounds like uh, what I would put, if you rate narcissism on a scale from zero to 10, I would put around the subtle narcissism range, around seven or eight, where they can actually dip into authentic emotion and authentic emotional expression. Um, this can become a problem down the line, even if you see these, if you even if you see that capacity in somebody. Um, and maybe we can talk a little a little bit about that. But yeah, I mean, if somebody's more in the subtle range, they might be able to turn to you at times. I would bet in in healthy ways with what they're feeling. I would bet though that if you kind of look back on their relationship, there were times where it didn't feel like an inviting opening up of emotion where it it felt not so mutual. And this is where I make a distinction between what I call emotion. I don't just call it emotion, but where we, what I make a distinction between emotion and what I call emotionality and emotionality. You want to think of as um, more instrumental, not necessarily consciously where the person's trying to manipulate you, but where they're, where they're displaying emotion and it feels like something isn't quite there. It might feel too over the top. Um, it might feel too intense there. And there, there might be an, a feeling of inauthenticity. It's kind of like listening to a song and some of the notes are slightly off key is the way I often is the metaphor I often use. I would bet if you look back on it, there were moments where you, felt that way um and what happens is if somebody has this pattern that they can also be open in some ways what they run into a problem in their lives they run into an obstacle they have some kind of challenge to that feeling of being special and their entitlement spikes Um, this is what i call the entitlement surge and suddenly where somebody is sort of in that subtle range of seven or eight where it doesn't feel quite so bad, they're now in the range of eight or nine. Mm-hmm. And they might even see pathological, seem pathologically narcissistic where they weren't before. That's one of the places it happens. But again, 
it's it's probably worth making that distinction. Is this emotion or is this emotionality? And if it ever feels like it's hard for you to, to um, it's hard for you to be a part of the interaction and you're more bearing witness and they don't quite let you in, then I think you're in the range of emotionality. We have talked extensively, Dr. Malkin, about narcissistic traits, how many types of narcissists there are out there, introverted narcissism, extroverted narcissism. For anyone listening, recognizing now that they are in a relationship which could be considered narcissistic, when is the time for them to either A, leave the relationship or B, have a conversation with them about seeking professional help? Uh, It's such a great question. Safety first is my answer. So if you look at the most problematic patterns when somebody becomes more and more narcissistic, three things stand out that I call the three stop signs that I always want to make people aware of. And I do in my conversation, if somebody in a relationship like this comes to me, I tell them about the three stop signs. I write about it in in rethinking narcissism. And um, they include, they include psychopathy, right? That's that guiltless, shameless, manipulative style and, and exploitative style. Right. These are people who, you know, I think there was actually, I remember there was a book without conscience and that really describes it. If you see evidence that this is somebody who, you know, stole their kid's college fund. I mean, these things aren't unusual, you know, borrowed a friend's car and never, never gave it back. Um, was seeing four women at once, but didn't tell anyone, right? This is, we're now in the range of psychopathy. Um, you also want to look out for just abuse, right? I, I, I always say this, it doesn't matter what causes the abuse. Not all narcissists are extremely physically or emotionally abusive. Many can be, but there's lots of sources of abuse. It doesn't just come from extreme narcissism. So, but if you if you are in a relationship where somebody is physically aggressive or physically threatening, or if you feel physically unsafe in any way, uh, that's where safety is an issue, and you want to get help leaving that relationship. Make sure you don't get isolated. That you're not support. Uh, that you're not unsupported. Emotional abuse, same thing. If somebody uh, calls you names constantly criticizing, and I'm not talking about in an angry moment saying something critical. It's really a systematic tearing down of your self-esteem that we're talking about, which is that's the form of emotional abuse that people often associate with what's called narcissistic abuse. I would argue that most, that all abuse is narcissistic because the person loses sight of there's another human being that they're interacting with. But I think what people mean by that, it's that systematic tearing down and, and, making a person question themselves through things like gaslighting, which is acting as though the, you know, acting with you as though somebody you're crazy or you're losing your mind, even saying that to you and changing events and pretending that they haven't changed the story. You know, that kind of, this is emotional abuse. You see that second stop sign, right? Again, you, you want to think about, you want to think about getting help. And, and to leave if you're having trouble doing that. And the third is denial, 
denial is hugely important. I talk to people about this all the time because if a person can't acknowledge that they have problems in any way, you know, the people who with narcissistic personality disorder come to me can say and have said things like, I, I feel like I've been a monster all my life. Um, I've ruined my relationships. I may have ruined my career. Can you help? Right. They're acknowledging problems. Um, if a person can't acknowledge even the smallest way that they have a problem, nothing is going to change ever. Um, and you want to get help leaving a relationship like that because it's not going to get better until they do something about it. Second part of your second answer to your question. If you see people in the subtle range, um, I recommend uh, making sure that you are relating in a securely attached way yourself for you, even less so for them, because it's not healthy for us not to relate in securely attached ways. What I mean by that is that if they are impacting in a way that doesn't make you feel good, you want to find a way to say it, but you want to do it with what I call empathy prompts just to see if they have some capacity for self-awareness or change. Empathy prompts, I derived from the research. I developed empathy prompts based on, uh, based on information that we can see that when somebody is not in the disordered range or even some who are, if they have some self-awareness, um, their empathy is blocked. But they have some capacity in there somewhere because it's wired into us as human beings through evolution to focus on relationships and connection. And uh, the research that I drew from is something called communal activation, that if you refer to relationships and you talk in a relationally aware way, like we using language like we are us, or in the case of empathy prompts, directly addressing the importance of the person and the relationship, um, that it kind of lights up those dormant or blocked centers for empathy and connection. So I always recommend empathy prompts part, you know, the first step is referring to the importance of the person in the relationship and then sharing your vulnerable feelings. Um, this is less about telling the person what's wrong with them or what they did wrong than about the impact on you, which is never, which is always a good idea. Uh, and it models relating in a securely attached manner. So something like if you're in a relationship and your, your father um, is constantly criticizing you and they, you know, they're not a malignant narcissist, but they, but they, they can get into this way of, of talking to you. You might try an empathy prompt uh, like dad, um, you're one of the most important people in my life. You're, you know, you're always, you'll always be important to me, which is why it's so devastating to me. It leaves me feeling like so small when the most important person that I've had in my life all along talks to me like I'm nothing, like I don't matter, talks down to me. I, you know, I, that's an empathy prompt. And for anybody who has a capacity for self-reflection, two things have happened. One is you've sort of activated their communal network where they're thinking about relationship and the fact that you've said essentially they're special to you. And um, you have shared a vulnerable feeling. Uh, and even I say this, even if the person can't receive it, it's better for you because you want to be in touch with those feelings. It's healthier for you. Um, that, that's as much for you as it is for trying to address anything in the relationship. If the person has any capacity 
for empathy that's in there that what that then is unblocked most the average person will soften they'll melt to say oh my gosh so sorry sweetheart i don't want you to feel that way right mm-hmm. so it's a test it's both an invitation to change and a test for whether or not the person can meet you there we've talked a lot about narcissism in relationships but what about not as in romantic relationships but what about narcissism in friendships could someone not being there for a friend be considered narcissistic um yes it, it is a, it is one sign right so again just think about sort of the through line for what we're talking about mm. is that the the problem that people who are extremely narcissistic uh, is are trying to cope with is they don't really have any model for being able to just be vulnerable and feel like you know people will be there for them right and if that's their experience they often don't know how to do that for others either mm. and and if you think about emotion emotional hot potato it's disowning feelings it's in fact stirring up insecurity in you I go through all the, the the signs in rethinking narcissism of the way this can this can show up, but essentially, the more unwilling you are yourself, the more unwilling somebody is who's extremely narcissistic to get into those feelings uh, of sadness uh, or of worry, of not having a great day, of just feeling blue. If they're so loath to be open about and expressive in healthy ways with that for themselves, they're not going to be able to be there for you with it. They can't, mm-hmm. they, they can't approach it. It becomes a kind of off limits experience that needs to be pushed to the side. So typically, you know, if you, if you're in a relationship with somebody like this and you start to struggle, you know, one extreme version is something I call emotion phobia, right? Where, I'm having a hard day and I had a difficult time at work. Maybe, maybe I was sick. Maybe my mother was sick and I start to talk about that. That's an even clearer example. Like my mother has been doing well. I really don't think that she is going to be around that much longer. A person who is extremely narcissistic won't be able to tolerate staying there and they'll change the subject. Mm. They'll say, so what do we want to do tomorrow? Are there any questions someone can ask to figure out if they themselves are, in fact, narcissistic? I think the most important question is, um, do you, you know, it's not definitive, but if you are struggling with being able to acknowledge insecurity um, comfortably with others, or when you've made mistakes, Right when you've made errors, when you think you've made errors or missteps, um, and and instead of defending against all of that because it makes you feel threatened or insecure, you know, the, to be able to say sorry and do repair, repair a relationship. It's not our mistakes that are a problem; it's what we do with them afterwards. And the more narcissistic someone is, they don't trust that repair can even happen. So they have to pretend that they didn't make mistakes or they have to defend it. They have to explain. If you see that in yourself, you want to start thinking about whether or not you're you're getting into unhealthy territory with narcissism. Because we have to have that capacity. It's part of closeness. No conflict, no closeness. 
conflict is inevitable. It's really about how we manage it. Mm, Absolutely. I also end the podcast with two questions, Dr. Malkin. The first being, what is your favorite quote or the mantra you live by? My favorite quote or the mantra I live by, I think that for whatever reason, maybe because we're talking about this, I'll share one of my favorite quotes, Mm -hmm. which is character is the trace of relationship from a post Freudian analytic, relational analytic writer named Christopher Bolas. And what he meant by that is that we're, unlike the way Freud thought about it, which is we're made of sex and aggression, we're made of people. Mm-hmm. That what shapes our character, what shapes the narcissistic character, anyone shapes my character, is have you had an experience where you can freely express parts of yourself, there, you know, and feelings, states of mind in a relationship or do you have to leave them out in order to maintain connection um and if you've had to leave out important parts of yourself and feelings that's going to shape your character that becomes the trace of relationship and i think a lot of change and healing is about recognizing how the the family members the parents the people that we had to adapt to still reside within us Mm-hmm. so that we can so that we can free ourselves up to express what we couldn't express before and what books other than your own on this subject or podcasts would you recommend dr malcolm i, I wouldn't want to play favorites with podcasts on this subject um let me think of a really good accessible i love an author named Stephen Mitchell, who wrote a book, one of my favorite books, called Hope and Dread in Psychoanalysis. Uh, And I would say that a lot of his early writings and a lot of his work uh, informed the the way I approach helping people with narcissism and pathological narcissism and how I think about the, the way it works in human relationships. Because although he didn't use quite the same language, he, he talks a lot about narcissistic illusion um, in healthy ways versus defense. And that's another really core way I think about human beings. Anything in our experience can be used defensively or adaptively, meaning it can, it can be used to primarily, as you the word used earlier, protection, protect mm-hmm. ourselves only at the expense of other ways of living life and being open to people and being a full human being, um, or we can use it adaptively, right? So if I still believe that I can write a great book, um, even though I've failed writing a book three times, that's, that's some healthy narcissism. Mm-hmm. And maybe eventually I'll write that book, right? So that's adaptive. Um, so I love the way he works with that. I love the way he talks about sort of playful illusions in life. Um, So I I would recommend Hope and Dread. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Malcolm, for coming on to the podcast. It was wonderful to have you. I have no doubt our audience has been writing notes and has learned a lot as... 
Thank you for listening to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast. I am your host, Scarlett B. Clark, award-winning founder and CEO of Smart Girl Tribe, the UK's number one female empowerment organization, host of this top-rated podcast, the Smart Girl Tribe podcast, and author. You are my community, my family, so come and follow along for more female empowerment and personal development in our private Facebook group, the Smart Girl Tribe Society, or on Twitter or Instagram at Smart Girl Tribe.